Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The second Bible reading we've got today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39, and you can find that on page 1610. All right, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Thanks, Ben. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that it feeds us and that in it there is life. So we pray this morning, uh, please speak to us and conform us more and more in the image of your Son. Amen. I can ask you please to open up your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 4, to the first reading that Ben brought to us. We're going to spend a bit of time in that passage today. Uh, And likewise, to make sure you take out the leaflet that you're given as you came in, there's a pretty detailed outline which will help you to follow along. There's some other passages that are printed there, and you'll also see, I'll get to a discussion question at the very end, uh, where I'll ask you just to turn to the person next to you and talk for a few minutes. Well, so far in this series on the Lord's Prayer, we've seen Jesus teach us to pray first for God's concerns, uh, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and only second for our situation. Uh, We saw we had to pray for food, Uh, Give us today our daily bread. We're to pray for forgiveness uh, of our sins as we forgive others. Uh, And now this week, with lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we're to pray for protection. Uh, Food, forgiveness, protection. I tried to come up with a word starting with F, but I couldn't. So if you can think of something, that'd be useful. Um, This is a prayer about protection. This is a prayer in particular to resist seeking anything other than hallowing God's name, working for his kingdom to come, and wanting his will to be carried out. I presume that Jesus thinks this is one of the top three things for us to be praying each day, because temptation is real. In the 21st century Adelaide, it's particularly alluring, because God, in his incredible generosity, he has blessed us so lavishly, so extravagantly. I think we all know how easy it is to settle for less, to be distracted by the good things of this world. And the only conviction that will protect us is the certainty that God's way is always better. And so, for today's big idea, pretty there at the top left of your handout, today's big idea, God never shortchanges us. God never shortchanges us. The thing is, even Jesus had to learn this lesson. So look with me there, point one, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 in detail. Uh, Bible's open, please, Matthew chapter 4 on page 1,376. Uh, We're going to just work through this passage today, sort of line by line, that's normally what we do here, even though this series has been a bit unusual. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's begin at verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, First thing I want to say, and it's printed there on your handout, Jesus' temptation is not a surprise to God. Jesus' temptation is not a surprise to God. See, when Jesus says to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, what he's doing is reminding us that, is that temptation, it comes not just in the form of the sights that dazzle, there are also evil forces arrayed against us that are seeking to lead us astray. And we see that most powerfully, actually, in this passage when Jesus himself comes up against the devil himself, the devil, the very epitome of evil. And yet, verse 1 is reminding us, even from the outset, even temptation is within God's great plans. Nothing takes God by surprise. That is, God's plan for his name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth, it won't be thwarted by our success or failure in resisting temptation, which I think is just the greatest relief as we set off on this journey. Well, let's look at the three temptations that Jesus faces. Firstly, temptation number one, 
verses 2 through 4, settling for less than what God promises in His Word. Pick it up in verse 2 with me. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to Him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, verse 2 tells us that Jesus, uh, with a, what I think is characteristic understatement, he was hungry. Uh, he'd been in the desert for 40 days. Now, I don't know about you, I tried the 40-hour famine once. Uh, yeah, I got through the first night and then afterwards gave up. But if you'd been in the desert 40 days, you'd be hungry. And what's more, if the devil came to you, at that point, you'd sense this is a period of high stress. Now, notice how the devil is introduced there. Um, the devil actually is called, verse 3, the tempter. Now, I think probably there should be a capital T, just to emphasise it the tempter so now you know if someone introduces themselves to you hi i'm the tempter you probably know this is danger uh, that you need to be careful at this point now we saw this passage a couple of weeks ago when we thought about give us today our daily bread the temptation here i think particularly for jesus and what he's saying to us the temptation is to think that mere survival in this life matters more than flourishing in eternity which only God's Word can enable. Only God's Word brings life to the full. Now, the reason I can confidently say this is because Jesus will not starve to death in the desert. Like, He won't. Not if He is the Son of God, which God the Father has just declared Him to be. You'll see it printed there on your handout. The immediately preceding verses to chapter 4, uh, from chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. So Jesus will not starve. He is the Son of God. But the temptation is to settle for less still. And in fact, what we'll see at the very end of this episode, in verse 11, is that God will send angels to attend to Jesus. Well, on your handout there, you'll see I've asked a question. When are you most susceptible to temptation? When are you most susceptible to temptation? Are you most susceptible to temptation when actually things are going really well and so you get distracted? Or are you most susceptible when actually you're stressed and you're under pressure and in that moment it's tempting just to latch onto anything else because it looks easier and better and shinier at the time? Don't forget, Jesus has been in the desert 40 days without food. He has the devil attacking him. This feels like a pretty high-stress situation. When are you most susceptible to temptation? I think actually for most of us, it's when we are under pressure, when we are stressed, when it feels like there is an easier, quicker, simpler, safer alternative to God's way. See, when you're sick, it's tempting to get impatient with others who won't attend to you in the way in which you would like? When you're lonely, when you're at yet another wedding without a partner and everyone else is full of happiness and smiles, it's tempting to think about dating an unbeliever. When you've been hurt by someone else and you know that you're meant to forgive them just as God has forgiven us, it's still tempting to slander them, to righteously put your point of view to others. And when life is just so frantically busy, like 
every December in the lead up to Christmas. It's tempting to skip spiritual food because you're just trying to get by. In that moment, please don't settle for less. Jesus didn't because God never shortchanges us. Okay, first temptation, settling for less than what God promises in His Word. Second temptation, doubting that God is trustworthy. This is verses 5 through 7. Pick it up with me again in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, what's interesting with this second temptation is that the devil quotes scripture at Jesus. Maybe that's because Jesus answered the first time with, it is written. So now the devil is going to say, well, let's see what the Bible says. And he quotes Psalm 91, as if he's going to play Jesus at his own game. Of course, the thing is, Jesus knows that he could have called down 12 legions of angels to assist him. But if he did, he'd be doubting God's trustworthiness. There's a very strange temptation, this second one. I mean, it's a sort of an artificial situation, isn't it? Takes him to the top of the temple, says, chuck yourself off, and if God really loves you, he'll look after you. And if you think about it, there was no reason why Jesus would jump off the temple unless he doubted that God had his best interests at heart. I think there is a world of difference between what the devil is suggesting to put God on trial, to sceptically demand a sign before we will believe him. There's a world of difference between that and bringing our requests before our heavenly dad, who longs to give us what's best for us. You see, for a child of God, trusting God means being contented with his reply, even when it's not what we want, and not getting petulant or bitter if he has a different answer. You see that, in fact, in Jesus. If you fast forward to Gethsemane, to Jesus' darkest hour, as his enemies arrive to carry him off to the cross, still he does not get doubt God's trustworthiness. He still does not think that God is shortchanging him. His prayer in the garden, Father, not my will be done, but yours. Okay, so the second temptation is the temptation to doubt that God is trustworthy. It's coming into the third and final temptation, and this is on the right-hand side of your handout. Temptation number three, wanting God's gifts, but not given God's way. Wanting God's gifts, but not given God's way. That's what I think this third temptation is about. Look at it with me in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. We notice this time uh, that Jesus, the devil doesn't open with, If you are the Son of God. That's how he began the last two temptations. Uh, but he doesn't say that this time. Maybe he's worked out that that strategy is not going to work for Jesus. He's tried it twice. So instead, the evil one is offering Jesus, at the outset of his ministry, 
Jesus is, uh, the devil is offering Jesus the easy way to get all that God was going to give him anyway. The devil is offering an alternative or a shortcut, instant gratification, you might say, the way to glory without pain or suffering. And I say that because at the end, Jesus will inherit all the kingdoms of the world. The Father will hand all things over to the Son. It's just that God's way is through the agony of the cross. And so this temptation is the temptation to stop praying the first request of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, even with the prospect of such appalling suffering, still, Jesus doesn't think that somehow God is shortchanging him. He knows that God's way is always better, that God's gifts are good, but they're to be given God's way. Now, one of the questions, of course, for us as we think about that, and it's printed there on your handout, why does God do things this way? I mean, if you think about it, if God loves us, why doesn't he just click his fingers, remove all the temptation from our lives, take away any opportunity we might have to fail, and just fast forward us to the end, that time where there will be no mourning or crying or suffering or pain? Why doesn't God just do it that way? Well, we don't fully know why God chooses to allow us to continue to experience temptation, but He does. Uh, you notice the prayer that we're, to, we're told to pray? The prayer is not remove all temptation from our lives. The prayer is lead us not into the temptation that is real. And I take it the reason for that is because the only way to remove all temptation from our lives will be to remove us from the world. Which, I want to say, some Christians have tried in the past. I'm thinking at this point of the monastic movement, of the monks and the nuns who've chosen to retreat from the world so they might not be contaminated by the world. And I want to say, whilst I commend their sincerity and their desire, they are terribly misguided and deluded. Because sin is not just external to us, it is also within what we do know, I think, is that allowing us to experience temptation is for our good, because it makes, it, more like, it makes us more like Christ. That's the second reading uh, that Ben brought to us. There's a verse printed there for you on your handout from Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Unfortunately, verse 29 didn't make it into the handout. That's my fault. But verse 29 goes on to say, for, God, for those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. Why does God allow us to experience temptation? I'm not entirely sure why, but I do know that it is meant to make us more like Christ. A part of the reason we know this, I think, is because even Jesus' own temptation was for our good. You see, what began in the desert in Matthew chapter 4, under the devil's attack, that will reach a crescendo in Christ's abandonment and the cross 
in Matthew 27. But actually where it reaches its culmination, that's with Jesus being even more honoured and glorified and deserving of praise for what he has done. And you see that, I think, in Hebrews chapter 2. I've printed the verse there for you on your handout if you want to look at it. Hebrews 2 verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. A pioneer of their salvation is talking about Jesus. So verse 10 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Now, don't mishear me. It's not saying that Jesus was somehow imperfect before the cross. It's just saying that he hadn't been fully pressure tested until the cross. And afterwards, having done the Father's will, having been obedient to death, having stood firm under temptation, Jesus is now accredited as worthy and God will exalt him to the highest place. And this, I think, brings a much better perspective for us. It's saying that the reason God allows us to be fleetingly tempted is so that our faith may be refined and proven genuine, certain that ultimately he will never shortchange us. Well, let's see how the passage finishes there in verse 11. Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Angels came and attended him. Uh, I think verse 11 is a good reminder for us that in our situation, we are never alone, that God is always with us. In fact, did you know that the first name of Jesus that we encounter in Matthew, the first name back in chapter 1, is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And actually, at the end of Matthew's account, in chapter 28, the very last words in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus says to his disciples, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. God is always with us. And I said at the start of this talk that this prayer is about more than just lead us not into temptation. It is also about deliver us from evil. Uh, What I want to say, and you'll see there a note on your handout, um, today we're actually changing back one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer that we pray. Um, Instead of praying, deliver us from the evil one, we're actually going to go back to praying, deliver us from evil. Um, I thought I'd just let you know why. There's two reasons. Firstly, it's because historically, that's what Christians have prayed. We pray, deliver us from evil. Mostly, and this is the second reason, because evil is more than just the devil. Evil is more than just the devil. It is true, the devil is the epitome of evil, but he is not the sum total of all that we need protection from. As I've already suggested, evil is not just external to us, it is also within. It lingers in our sinful nature until we are fully made, by, fully made like Christ. Just as the cross highlighted the evil forces who played their part putting Jesus to death, so it is right for us to acknowledge that there is more evil in the world We must never abdicate our responsibility by claiming the devil made me do it. Instead, the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, 
It's a prayer for God's deliverance against all that might tempt us to turn away from God, to think that His way is not better, or to suspect that He might be shortchanging us. Well, uh, you saw in that video earlier um, that tonight is the final gathering of our 5 and 7 p.m. congregations after nearly 23 years in this particular form. Uh, some of those who are at 5 p.m. were actually there at the very beginning. People like Andrew and Jill on that very first night. Uh, just as at 5 p.m. there are many more who have arrived since. People like Kane and Trini or Conrad, Laura and Melissa. And the same, of course, applies to 7 p.m., Actually, some were there at the start. Les, uh, who you met on Trinity Stories a few weeks ago, he was there. But many more are new in recent times, particularly this year. I think of Karan, or Varun, or Elijah, or Jacob, or Monica, or Olivia, or Ellie, or James, and the list just goes on and on. Throughout the entire time of 5 and 7 p.m., God has consistently led us away from evil. He has led us away from temptation. He has delivered us from evil as we've seen His name hallowed. We've seen more of His kingdom come and we've seen His will done in and through 5 and 7 p.m. Jesus is and always will be with us. He will never shortchange us. And our prayer is that He will continue to do so in and through 6 p.m., for the generations to come. Well, in preparing for this talk this week, uh, the lyrics of an old hymn came to mind. Oh, let me feel thee near me. The world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near me, around me and within, but Jesus Draw thou nearer and shield my soul from sin. Well, where I want to finish this talk, you'll see there at point two, is just with a few brief thoughts on how practically God leads us not into temptation, but deliver us, deliver us from evil. That's the prayer we're to pray. What does that look like in practice? And I just want to say two things very briefly. What resources does God provide for us? Uh, to lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil. And both are printed there on your handout. Firstly, first resource is each other. He provides each other. Uh, to state the obvious, if you don't ask for help, you won't get help. And, as we reflect on a Matthew chapter 4, going it alone up against the devil, it does not feel like a winning strategy. So get help and enlist support to resist temptation. I printed a couple of verses there from Galatians, which I think summarises this so elegantly. Have a look with me, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or else you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens... And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I often say that the easiest way to sin is in private. 
the easiest way to sin is in private. That's when temptation is hardest to resist. So at least part of the solution ought be make your life a little more public. Make it a little more accountable to others whenever you need help. Perhaps it's in the things that you watch or you look at on television or online. Maybe you need help with the sharpness of your tongue. Maybe you need help on how you spend your money. Because that's the one thing we Australians really don't want anyone else to know anything about. It's my business. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to be a people who are constantly oversharing with each other. But we ought to be open and honest. And open and honest with, if I can put it this way, people who are a little bit more mature than we are. See, that's the gift of older siblings in our church family of people who are a little bit further down the pathway, who are calling back to us to catch up to them and to follow in their footsteps, to tread where they have trod as they have followed Jesus in the way of life everlasting. You'll see on your handout there a reference to um, a new podcast that we've been talking about that Stephen uh, Ermston, our kids' pastor, has just begun. It's called Family Perspectives. It's a great short 15-minute podcast for anyone who is involved in helping a young person grow as a disciple of Jesus, which is best I can tell. That's got pretty wide appeal and application in our church. Now, I want to say at a personal level uh, for Wendy and I that the people whom we are most indebted to when it comes to how do you walk in the way in which Jesus did, particularly as a minister, uh, well, it's Paul and Sue Harrington. Uh, everything that we have learnt in ministry, we have learnt from them. And we're so grateful and thankful that God has given us resources, brothers and sisters, to follow as they follow Christ. So that's the first resource, each other. The second resource, far more importantly, how does God lead us not into temptation? How does He stop us from being, uh, how does He deliver us from evil? Well, the second thing on your handout. It's the promises in His Word. It's the promises in His Word. I say that because there will be many dangers, toils and snares when it comes to following Jesus. And yet, three times in Matthew 4, so you can't miss it, right? Three times, Jesus says, it is written. It is written. It is written. We're being reminded that the reassurances of God's promises are the best resource to protect us, to strengthen us against the temptation of a particular situation, of thinking maybe this way would be better than God's way. It's God's promises that give us the hope to persevere until we are fully delivered, until we are fully conformed to the image of God's own Son. And so I think it's the picture of God's promises they are like a down payment or a deposit that guarantees and secures our reservation, a future outcome. Because once you have it, you're less worried here and now and you're less tempted to turn away to something else. Not if you know that God's promises are always better.
So here's how I'm going to finish. You'll see there at the bottom half of the right-hand side, I'm going to read out five different promises that we find in God's Word about what He has already given us as a guarantee of what's still to come. And then afterwards, I'm just going to pause and I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you and for two minutes discuss at the bottom which promises of God mean the most to you and why, just as a way to encourage each other. Have a look at each of these five promises of God, guarantees of what is still to come. From Ephesians 1, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. This first promise, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, Or from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the picture of Christ, the first fruit of a great harvest that is about to bloom. Or from Hebrews 7, Jesus the permanent priest. Verse 23, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Or from Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, here Jesus is pictured as the trailblazer, the one who opens a new path in his blood that we can follow. Or lastly, this is from that second Bible reading, Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You hear the logic that Paul is using? If God has given us his own son, his most valuable possession, you know he will not shortchange us ever. So, Two minutes, the person next to you, which of these promises means the most to you and why? Over to you and then I'll close for us in prayer.